I like watching people work. It teaches me a lot about who they are and why they do things. I'll give you an example. My, my friend Steve, who he's not here, he was at the last service. My friend Steve, I love watching Steve work. First of all, he, um, he can't handle, if there's anything in the room that's broken, he's gonna get up and fix it. You know that guy, you have that guy in your life, it's like, it, you know, he'll look up and he'll see my intake is, is messy and it needs to be replaced. Uh, you know, and he'll, next thing, the next day he'll show up with an intake uh, or he'll show up with, a, with, with whatever. It's just how Steve is. He loves to fix things and I love watching Steve because he has just this unique personality of the way he fixes things. Uh, he, we, we call it MacGyvering. Like he'll just MacGyver anything. He'll fix it no matter what, no matter how tricky it is, he'll figure it out. And what I love about Steve is when I watch him work, I, re, I realize a lot about him. Steve, for Steve, it's not the, it's the finished product as much as it is the process. He likes the adventure of figuring out how to fix something that's broken. Any of you guys like that? Uh, I'm the opposite, okay? I, I'm, I'm the guy where, like, if I can't fix the entirety of the thing, I won't even start. I'm like, if I can't, like, my, my lawn will go five months without being mowed. Why? Because I didn't have the time to completely do my whole yard. Like, I didn't have time to pull all the weeds. So I'll just let, I'd rather leave all the weeds than just pull a few. My wife doesn't understand that. She's like, well, can't you just mow the lawn and leave the weeds? I'm like, no. I have to do it all, right? It says something about me. I guess I don't know whether it's good or bad, um, but I, I like the final product. I like to sit back and go, look, wow, look at this, this thing, you know, that I did. Um, everybody works differently, and it teaches us something about, you know, when we look at Jesus and the way that he walked and the way that he worked, uh, and I don't mean his carpentry. We actually don't really know if he was a good carpenter or not. But when we see Jesus working um, on redemption, that was his job, his three-year ministry was redemption, to live the perfect life, to be the perfect sacrifice, we learn a lot about him and the way he works. You know, he, he, was, he was very intentional. He knew what he came to do. He came to die. He came to preach the kingdom of God. He came to recruit the disciples and establish a church. He was very intentional. But at the same time, he was laser-focused. At the same time, he was interruptible. Right, he's on his way to heal Jairus' daughter, and all of a sudden, hey, who touched me? And they're like, Jesus, we're in a crowd of people. What do you mean, who touched you? And he's like, somebody touched me. <laughs> and he stops, and he, he pays attention to the, the woman with the issue of blood. I mean, when Jesus would heal, you know, he, he would touch them. Why would he do that? It was an act of compassion. You know, he, he didn't just um, heal the leper from afar like I would. He, he actually put his hands on them, and, and he healed the blind person hands-on. Why? It teaches us something about the way Jesus works. It teaches us something about his nature. Now, in the same way, when we look at the first six days of creation, it teaches us something about God and about the way that he works and the way that he creates and what his purpose is and the things that he does. And so I'm excited to look at that with you guys. Uh, we're gonna take the first six days of creation, Genesis chapter one, verse three uh, through 25, and we're gonna speed it up a little bit. We were doing one verse a week and now we're gonna actually tackle a chunk. So, so buckle up uh, and we're gonna run through it. Now before we get into the text, uh, I need to address a couple of things. Uh, the first thing is, I want to talk about how old the earth is, okay? And now for some of you guys, you could care less about this. You're like, I don't know. I read it. It says six days, so it must be six days, and that's the end of the story, right? Uh, well, some of you, that's the end of the story. For some of you, you like watching YouTube videos and uh, reading articles, and you've maybe found some of the controversy that's out there floating around. Maybe you've read some books about this. And the reality is, is that within Christianity, there is a broad variety of different views regarding the age of the earth. And why does that matter today? It matters because today we're looking at the six days of creation. And how old do you think the earth is will be determined by the way that you interpret the word day. It's the Hebrew word yom, and there's a variety of interpretations. Now, what I want to do is I want to introduce you to some of these interpretations, uh, tell you what the right one is, and then um, now, uh, introduce you to some of these interpretations, uh, and, and, then, and then we'll move on into the text. This is a little bit of a sidebar here, okay? So six theories of the age of the earth in relation to the six days. The first theory is probably the one that you are most familiar with, and uh, we're calling it the 24-hour solar day theory. And that basically just means that God created the earth in six days, okay? And they were real days, and they literally 24-hour days. So God, how long did it take God to create the earth? Six days. This is a pretty common view now. It's, it's, it's uh, a lot of fundamental um, conservative Christians would hold to this view. People like John MacArthur hold to this view. Uh, Ken Ham, an institute for creation research, has a lot of really good stuff on this view. And how do they answer the question of the age of the earth or what appears to be an old earth? Uh, well, they answer it mostly with the global flood. 
They say, hey, you know, how do you get layers and layers of dead things, layers and layers of sediment, things that, that were fossilized? Well, you get a massive amount of water all at once flooding into different places. Makes a whole lot of sense, okay? So that's, that's one view. Another view within Christianity, and by the way, notice I said within Christianity, okay? So if somebody doesn't agree with you on how old the earth is, don't call them a heretic, and, and don't unfriend them on Facebook, please, okay? Just calm down. Uh, the second view is called the punctuated activity view. Punctuated activity basically means that, that God did create in six literal days, but there was stuff going on between the days that we don't know about. There was a lot of time between the days. So he'd create, and then there was a space of time, and then he would create, and there was a space of time. Another view that's not so popular now, but it used to be, uh, it shows up in like the Scofield Reference Bible, if you have one of those. Uh, it's called the gap view, or the gap theory. Essentially, remember last week we looked at um, the chaos and the unformed matter of Genesis chapter one, verse two, that before God came in and created light and darkness and separated everything, it was this kind of weird, chaotic abyss. So they would see that there is a gap of time between Genesis chapter one, verse two, and the rest of the creation. Uh, And some of them actually even believe that there was created life that actually fell into some kind of death before Adam and before the creation that we read about. And that's why we have dead things that appear like they've been dead for a really long time. Okay, now it doesn't work very well, at least for me, it doesn't work very well with the Hebrew, uh, the Bible itself. I'm not so concerned about the science, I'm concerned about the scripture. Um, But you can look into that one if you want. Another view is the day-age view. And that's kind of self-explanatory. Some people think that when it says day, yom, it just means a long period of time. And so it could be that God actually created the earth over the course of millions or billions of years. And when he says day, you know, for the Lord, a day is as unto what? A thousand years, right? So there's that idea. Another view is the framework view. And this view basically says, and rightfully so to some degree, hey, you know what? Moses wasn't trying to give us a science book. He was trying to say something about the sequence of how God created the cosmos. And so for that reason, we're wrong to take it too literally uh, and, and try to figure out exactly how God and how, how God did it and how long he did it. Now, that, there's some truth to that. Okay? Moses didn't write this so that you in 2020 with Google and YouTube could, could answer every little curious question that you have. But at the same time, you know, when you start saying the Bible isn't to be taken literally, that, that, that kind of becomes a slippery slope. Um, so that, but that's the framework view. And then here's the view I like, and actually, I, I, think, this is, I think this is the right one. Um, so obviously, it's the right one, right? Uh, and, it's, and it's kind of funny, actually. So it's called the omphalos view. Can you guys say omphalos? Now you speak Greek, okay. Omphalos is the Greek word, ready, for belly button or navel, okay? Uh, belly button. And, and why do you think it's the omphalos view? Have you ever heard the question, did Adam have a belly button? Have you ever thought about that? Yeah, well, why, why would he have had a belly button? He, he wasn't born in the womb. What's a belly button for? You know, it's for, it's for an umbilical cord, right? So, uh, so, so did he have a belly button? And, and uh, that's kind of one of those funny questions. But really the question of that is, is did God create Adam full grown? I would say yes, he did. So couldn't have God created the universe full grown? God created the trees full grown. He created, uh, uh, he created creation in process, And it kind of makes sense, you know, I mean, part of the way we judge the age of the earth is by looking at how long it would have taken light to get to us, okay? And so when God created the universe, did he wait around for that or did he just say, I'm gonna create a universe that's already in motion? So it could be that we have a very young earth that God created to be, appear as an old earth because God made things already full grown. Could be, I don't know. Pay your money, take your choice, I don't care. Here's the thing, okay? This isn't something we should be fighting about. Something we should be talking about but it isn't something that we should be fighting about. And and some people are very, very, very staunch about their view about the age of the earth. I wanna read a a quote here from Brian Chappell that I think is helpful. Brian Chappell's an author and pastor. He says, some of us are premillennial, some of us are millennial, some are postmillennial. If you don't know what that means, it's okay. These are serious questions among us about the timing of the events that will end the world. Still, we recognize that people can differ over timing issues and still believe the Bible is entirely true. Anybody ever heard anyone arguing about the end of the world and when it's gonna come and when Jesus is gonna return? Okay, Uh, he's basically saying this is similar. Um, We accept these differences without accusing one another of being unorthodox. 
The same ought to be possible in the discussion we are having over the timing of days at the beginning of the world. And I would say yes and amen to that. I think we can argue about when Jesus is coming back, but what's the point? He's coming back. And we can argue about how long it took God to create the universe, but what's the point? He created the universe, okay? I'm not saying it doesn't matter. I'm just saying it's not something we need to fight over. So I just want to get that out of the room because I know some of you guys, that's, that's what you want to hear out of this is like, well, how does this fit with what my science teacher told me? And how does this fit with, 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 uh, with the modern understanding that we have of the age of the earth? Um, and there are lots of different answers that are very plausible. I don't think all of them can be right at the same time. Um, and maybe, we're called, maybe it's something we haven't even thought of yet. I don't know. But I do know that science always tends to catch up with theology. Remember I said last week uh, that most people for most of history thought that the universe just always existed and the Bible came along and said no, had a beginning and people said that's ridiculous and then what did we find out? Most scientists now agree that the world had, the cosmos had a beginning. They call it the Big Bang. Call it whatever you want but the reality is I know what the beginning was because it says right here and science does have a tendency to catch up with theology so that's the thing you need to remember. The passage we're going to look at outlines really easily if you're into outlines. Uh, basically, we're going to look at six days of creation. God does eight creative acts in six days. Eight creative acts in six days. And those six days split really nicely down the middle between God forming and God filling. Okay, God forming the first three days and then God filling the second three days. So let's dive into it, just verse by verse, and then I'll end with some thoughts. Verse one, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we already looked at that before time, before space, before matter, there was God. He exists before it, therefore he exists outside of it. He is not dependent on his creation, his creation is dependent on him. Therefore he is sovereign fully over it. Okay, the uh, Latin for that, ex nihilo, God created out of nothing. He created out of nothing. Before there was anything, there was God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So we talked about this last week, but before God begins shaping and forming his cosmos, he actually creates raw material. He creates this weird, dark, watery abyss, this chaotic, lifeless, inhabitable, I had a struggle with this word last week too, inhabitable, 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 no. I need to find a different word. Uninhabitable. You say it. Say it three times. It's hard. Uninhabitable. Environment. Okay. Um, And he takes that and he forms it into a habitable environment. He forms it into a place where there can be life. Verse three. God said, let there be light. Notice how God creates. How does he create? He speaks. He speaks. He says words, right? Yeah, he says Note that. God said, let there be light. And there was light. What was the first thing God created? Light. Why? Because God doesn't like to work in the dark. And we'll talk about that in a minute. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. Notice that God is giving a moral pronouncement here. He's saying, light is good. He's saying something is right and something is wrong. What makes something good or bad? When God says it's good or bad. He has every right to decide what's good or bad, doesn't he? Because he created it. He created it out of nothing. He has full ownership. He has full ownership. And so he says whether something is good. Why is marriage between a man and a woman right? Why is it good? Because God said it was good. Because God made it. Why is marriage between a man or a man not good? Because God said it wasn't good. I'm not trying to pick on that, but that's the reality. And and at the end of the day, you know, as Christians, what sets us apart in our worldview uh, is not that we're just such good people. It's, It's that we recognize what is good and bad based off of what God has said, based off of his nature. He created it, and he created it in a particular way and for a particular reason. So I love, and I think it's interesting that God instantly begins making moral pronouncements about what is good and what is bad. Remember, he says later, it's not good that man is alone. That's why you guys are all here, because it's not good for you to be alone. You need to be in the body, okay? You need to be with the church. So he says, let there be light. There was light. God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. Now you're going to notice that, that God is in the business of separating. He's in the business of organizing. Everything has its place. Everything has its part. He separates the light from the darkness. And he called the light day and the darkness he called a night. 
God starts naming things. Why does he name things? Because he made them. That's what you do when you, when you make something. When you make a baby, what do you do? You go get ice cream. And then you name it. We had some friends call us one time, and they were like, oh, our pregnancy test came back positive. What do we do? And we're like, go get ice cream. <laughs> They're like, oh, okay. Like, are there false positives? Nope, there's no false positives. Okay. They're not here, so I can, I can say that. Uh, <laughs> he calls the light day. He calls the darkness night. So part of dominion, part of creation is that you get to name stuff. And that's why God told Adam to go name stuff because Adam was part of his dominion. Adam had a sub-regent, a sub-regency, a sub-ruling um, ability that God gave him. So he named stuff. There was evening and morning the first day. All right, I got to speed up. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. So apparently the creation at this point, the earth was sort of just a formless watery abyss or whatever, and God comes in and he creates an expanse between lower and higher. So he creates a horizontal canopy, is one way it can be translated, that somehow holds the water in the sky away from the water underneath. Now there's an interesting theory about this you can Google later when you're bored, Um, and it's called the the canopy theory or something like that. Some people believe that literally the earth was covered in a water canopy um, in prehistoric time, and that's why people lived so long, because there was some kind of like a greenhouse thing going on, and then when the flood came, God actually punctured the canopy, and that's where all the water came from. Uh, Kind of interesting. I'm not saying that it's right or wrong, but you can look into it if you want. God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place. Oh, wait, I skipped some stuff. Hold on. Verse 7, God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God, God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. You know, it's worth noting, by the way, most of the time when the Bible says heaven, it's not talking about God's immaterial space. It's talking about the sky or the cosmos or whatever's above us. Okay, so that's what it means thereby. So when it says God made the heavens and the earth, it means he made everything here and everything above us. Okay, that's just a freebie. Um, God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. Let the dry land appear, and it was so. It's interesting to me that God said that the land was to appear, almost as though it was there, but it was just submerged underwater. Kind of interesting. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, so he names it, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, Plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and tree bearing fruit in which is their seed according to its own kind. Do you think God is concerned with things being according to their own kind? Otherwise, Adam would have married an ape, right? God's very organized. He has very intentional reasons for the way he does things. And we start screwing with things and we mess up, we mess it up. Okay, God has, he has plans. God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the third day. So he creates the land, but he doesn't just create the land for no purpose. He creates the land for the trees and for the plant life. You notice everything is symbiotic. Everything helps something else. So the land is for the purpose of creating plants. And what are the plants for? for the purpose of feeding the animals. And what are the animals for, eventually, so we can have steak, right? Um, so, so everything has a purpose. Everything has a function. Everything matters. Um, God doesn't create things in order that they don't bear fruit. You remember what Jesus did to the tree that didn't bear fruit? Didn't end well for it, right? Um, God creates for the purpose of things bearing fruit. And I didn't mention this earlier, by the way. Did you notice that God ends his workday at 5 o'clock? I don't know if it's five o'clock, but he ends his work day in the evening. <laughs> you notice he does that? The, the, the Jewish day, you know, began, uh, it began in the evening and it, and it ended in the evening. That's the Jewish Sabbath started, at fr- you know, Friday, probably at 5 p.m. And it ended at Saturday at 5 p.m. Why does God do that? Is he tired? Does, I mean, it was an episode of uh, whatever show he likes on at five. Um, he, he's modeling for us rest. It's, a, it's almost like a proto-Sabbath. He, he's modeling for us the fact that we need rhythms. We need an end to our day. I don't know about you guys, but I need ends to my days. Certain days where I'm like, I just need this day to end, and I want to start over. So God ends his day, and he does that every day. God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Now, wait a minute. 
Didn't God already create light? Why is he creating light again? Did he create light twice? Is it double light? What's the deal? Why did God create light and then create light? Uh, it doesn't make sense. And also, here's another question. Why did God create plants that need the sun to live and then he created the sun after he created the plants? What's up with that? These are things that people ask and these are things that people are curious about. Uh, and, and people go, well, this can't be right because how could there possibly be light without the sun? What do you think? Well, when I get to the book of Revelation, I see an existence with light and no sun. Do you think God is capable of producing light without a sun? Do you think maybe it was intentional that God created light before the sun? Maybe because certain people that rhymes with Egypt worshipped the sun? Sorry, I'm in a really stupid mood this morning. I don't know what's going on with me. This is what happens when they preach twice in one morning. I, I, I get stupid. Um, Egypt worshipped the sun. They literally thought the sun was the personification of, was it Ra? I mean, it was, it was, this, it was a god. And what's the, what did, what did the, the Israelites come from? They just came out of Egypt. And God's trying to remind them that, hey, you think that the sun is the sustainer of life? No. Who's the sustainer of life? Yeah. Plants can live without the sun. Why? Because God makes them live. There can be light without the sun. Why? Because God can emanate his own light. In fact, his glory is light, we find out, right? All of this stuff matters. It's all, in, it's all very intentional. So God creates the celestial space in verse 14. He said, let there be light in the expanse of the heavens to separate, again, separate, the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. Uh, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. So God creates the sun and the moon and the stars um, for, for multiple reasons, partly to bring light, but also to bring um, schedule and time, and consistency, and Sabbath, and, and, and you know, God created his, what is called the theocracy, um, which is basically the, the actual one nation under God, Israel. God created his people to function in schedule, and he gave them these feasts that would happen all throughout the year, and he used the way that the planets rotated, and he used the way that the days went, and the solar days went, to, to, to tell them when they were supposed to have these feasts, Okay, and just like, like, just like we are, we're going to have, um, you know, a feast on Thursday, right, Lord willing, um, and, and, and that's something that, that we look forward to, or at least we did before 2020, and it's something that, that's a great time, it's a great day in our life, at least it was before 2020, um, you know, it's, it's this time that we look forward to, and God created, for Israel, he created calendar holidays for them to, to look forward to, and he did that with the planets and the stars. I want to read something for you that I think is Really interesting. So Kent Hughes, one commentator, he writes this down for us. He says, the 17th century mathematician and philosopher, Sir Isaac Newton, you guys have heard of him before, had a mechanical replica of our solar system made in miniature. It, it's, at its center was a large golden ball representing the sun, and revolving around it were smaller spheres attached to the ends of the rods of varying lengths. They represented Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, and other planets. These were all geared together by cogs and belts to make them move around the sun in perfect harmony. Can you guys picture that? You've seen something like that before, right? One day as Newton was studying the model, an unbelieving friend stopped by for a visit. Marveling at the device and watching as the scientists made the heavenly bodies move in their orbits, the man exclaimed, my Newton, what an exquisite thing. Who made it for you? Without looking up, Sir Isaac replied, nobody. Nobody, his friend asked. That's right, I said, nobody. All of these balls and cogs and belts and gears just happened to come together. And wonder of wonders, by chance, they began revolving in their, own, their set orbit and with perfect timing. His friend undoubtedly got the point. The existence of Newton's machine presupposed a maker, and even more so, the Earth and its perfectly ordered solar system. Newton himself wrote, this most beautiful system of the sun, plants, and comets, planets, that's supposed to be, could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being. I thought that was so profound. If there's anything to me that points to the fact that we have a creator, it's the way that the planets and the stars and the galaxies are in the perfect 
order to sustain human life. Can that be an accident? Would anyone in their right mind think that's an accident? That it just so happens that we live on this planet that is perfectly formed, perfectly shaped for human life. I, I just can't imagine believing that. Verse 20, God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, both which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So God is now filling both the sky and the water and the earth, every dimension of his creation. He's filling it with life because that's God's desire. That's why God creates. He creates to fill with life. He created you to fill you with his life. That's the purpose then God said, oh wait, did I finish? Where was I? 26. 26. Thank you. Somebody's listening. Okay, that's where we're ending, right there. God makes man. We'll get into that next week. So God creates his universe. He does it in six days. He creates an organized universe. And the first question that we always need to ask is not what does this mean to me? The first question we need to ask is what does it mean? And then we need to ask, well, what would it have meant primarily to its original audience? What would it have meant primarily to its original audience? Who is Moses writing this down specifically for? For the Hebrews. For Israel. Now, not, not Israel in the future with David and everything um, where they were established. This is, this is formless, chaotic, homeless, wandering Israel in the desert. Unsure why in the world God called them out there in the first place. Unsure whether these fanciful, um, you know, stories that they grew up hearing about Yahweh creating um, were even real or not. They don't really know who they are. They don't really know where they came from. They don't really know what's, what's going on. And when, when God writes this account through Moses, what it's doing is it's establishing the reality of their identity. I want to read a quote for you here. Again, by Kent Hughes, he says, so then how did Moses Moses' hearers understand the days of creation as he read them the account. Certainly, they did not understand it as a myth. It was a polemic or an argument against the pagan mythologies of the surrounding nations. Each day of creation attacks one of the gods in the pagan pantheons of the day and declares that they are not gods at all. On day one, the gods of light and darkness are dismissed. On day two, the gods of sky and sea. On day three, the earth gods and gods of vegetation. On day four, the sun and the moon and the star gods. Days five and six dispense with the head of the divinity within the animal kingdom. Finally, it is made clear that humans and humanity are not divine, while also teaching that all from the greatest to the least are made in the image of God. Thus, biblical reality placed, replaced myth. Okay, we need to remember that. Now, we can spend all of our time trying to figure out how Genesis 1 fits with science. I'm not saying that's not a noble pursuit. But remember that Genesis 1 was written in order to remind the wandering Jews, the wandering Hebrews, that they were not Egypt. That Egypt worshipped all of these created things as God. And God says, those created things, I made them. I stand over them. I rule them. I am sovereign over the sun. You think the sun is your God? No. No. God is trying to remember these guys of who they, remind these guys of who they truly are, their true identity, and who the true creator and sustainer of the universe is. I just want you guys to understand that and remember that. And I, and I think that same message applies for us today. Now, I just want to give you quick four quick lessons from the sequence of the six days that I think have application for us. I just want to draw out four things that we see in this text um, that I think have application for us. I'll give them to you and then we'll go back through them. Number one, God speaks before he makes. 
I want you to notice that. God speaks before he makes. Number two, God turns on the lights before he works. Three, God forms before he fills. And lastly, God is present before he is productive. So let me just unpack those for you really quickly. God speaks before he makes. And I told you to note that when we were going through. Did you, did you notice that when God creates, he does it by speaking? Now, it demands that we ask the question, why does he do that? Why does he create through speaking? And why is it recorded that way? I mean, why, well, couldn't God have just thought it? Couldn't he have just thought it and it would have happened? I mean, maybe he didn't even have to think it. I don't know. I mean, God's so far beyond our own um, ability to understand. But for some reason, God decides that he's going to speak. And by speaking, that would be the mechanism or the agent or the process of how God creates. And we have to ask the question, why? And one of the answers that I really want you to remember is this. He wants you to know that his word and his work are synonymous. His word and his work are synonymous. When God says, it's the same as when he does. If God said it, he's gonna do it. If God said it, he's gonna do it. And when God speaks and creation obeys, it is a reminder for us that, when, that God's word is on par with God's work. That if we listen to his word, we are actually becoming part of his work. There's something here, though, that, that I need you to see. So flip over really quickly to John's gospel. John chapter 1. And some of you know where I'm going with this. I love introductions to books, and uh, I love John's introduction. He, he, he absolutely captivates his audience. You know, John's gospel, it's really unlike any other gospel. And when I say gospel, by the way, I mean Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, okay? Uh, John's gospel opens the same place in the same way that the Bible opens. And where is that? In the beginning. Yeah, in the beginning. So John opens his gospel like this. In the beginning was the word. And the Hebrew audience would go, yeah, that's true. In the beginning, God spoke. Totally true. That's right. The Logos. In the beginning was the word. Except the, the weird thing here is, is that John is talking about the word not as though it's a voice, but as though it's a person. The word, the word, the logos. He says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So God is actually, in the beginning when God is creating, he's creating through this person called the word. And he, the word, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. By the way, if you ever talk to a Jehovah's Witness, they're going to pull out a translation called the New World Translation. Yeah. And it changes, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It changes it to, in the beginning was a God. And it, it's absolutely not possible to do with the Greek, if you look at the Greek. And I'm not even a Greek scholar. Okay? Um, but that's, that's neither here nor there. Why, why do they do that? Because they want Jesus not to be God. Because that's the spirit of Antichrist. Because it removes his deity. So in the word was life. So this idea of life, zoe, when God creates life, he always does it through the word. And who is the word? Jesus is the word. So God creates through the word. That's what John's getting at. This is absolutely profound. Now that, that's pretty commonplace to some of you guys. But just imagine getting your head around that for the first time. You know, you've read Genesis, you know Genesis, in the, beginning, in the beginning God said, he created, and then the Apostle John writes this, and he says, you know, when God spoke, that was Jesus. He was there, he was in the beginning, God created through Jesus. That's incredible. He is the life, the Zoe. Now, what's so interesting about that, though, isn't just that God created through Jesus in the beginning. What's so interesting is that God created through Jesus again. So there's more than one Genesis in the Bible. Did you know that? There's more than one beginning in the Bible. Because God's word came into his creation again. Just like God's word came into the creation in Genesis 1, God's word comes into the creation again. Look at verse 14 here of John chapter 1. The word became flesh. Emmanuel, God with us, and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Son, 
as of only the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In other words, God spoke again. He spoke in Genesis, and he spoke again. How did he speak? He spoke by sending his Son into this world. God's word. Flip over to Hebrews chapter one. Anybody ever comes to you and tries to tell you Jesus is anyone other than God, I want you to remember. John one, Hebrews one, Colossians one, Revelation one. Just remember those four places. Those four places more than anywhere else in the Bible tell us who the real identity of Jesus is. Hebrews one. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God what? Anybody? He spoke. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by who? His son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So this same Jesus that God created the world through, he is now creating again through. God creates through his word. That means that Jesus is God's final word. You ever hear a parent tell his kid, I'll have the final word? Jesus is the final word. Jesus is the final word. One more place, Colossians chapter one. You should be really familiar with these passages. These passages should look like they're about to fall out of your Bible because they're so worn. Colossians chapter one, verse 15. And if they're not, I'm not judging you. You probably just got a brand new Bible. You're good. If you still have the gold on the edges of your Bible, it's okay, there's no judgment. <laughs> oh, man. Colossians 1, 15. It's talking about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That's not created. That is, he is the heir. He is the owner. For by him, all things were created. Not some things, not a few things. All things were created through the word, Jesus. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. Now, could that be any more clear how God creates? God creates through the word. Now, when you go back to John, and I'm having you flip all over the place, you go back to John chapter 1, John says that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, but then he says in verse where is it? 12. But to all who did receive him, who? The word. Who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, not of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Here's what John's saying. He's saying that if you want to be part of God's new creation, you take him at his word. And what is his word? Jesus. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word. See, here's the problem. We think of, we think of uh, Jesus as being um, a, a good moral example. Someone for us to model our life after. Oh, he's certainly not less than that. We think of the gospel as being a philosophy or an ideal, something to help us become a better version of ourselves. Now, if that's your gospel, that gospel will send you straight to hell. The gospel is the you and Galeon. It is the proclamation of the good news that God has, in fact, spoken again. He has spoken in his word. Listen to me. His word, listen, is ultimate reality. His word is ultimate reality. There's nothing more real than God's word because no one has more authority than God. If he says it, it's real. His word and his work are synonymous. The gospel is that God has created again, past tense, and, and believing the gospel is not, oh, I hope that God comes back and fixes everything. The, believing the gospel is taking his word and saying, no, he already did. Because his word and his work are synonymous. Has he finished it yet? No, but he said it. And because he said it, as in sending his son to die for our sins and ascending to the Father, it's done. That's why Jesus said it is finished. We take him at his word. We believe his word. The problem with the gospel that most of us preach in this country is it's too small. It's not a declaration of victory. It's fire insurance. It's how to avoid hell. It's how to have a better life. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus has won. The victory is done. His word and his work are one. That, that literally, we have a new king. We have a new administration. God is created again. We have a new Adam. We have new. Everything is new. And to be part of that new creation, what do you do? You believe his word. 
And that's what faith is. Faith is believing that Jesus came and did what he said he did and who was who he said he was. When you believe that, you become part of his new creation. Isn't that exciting? Why does God speak before he makes? Because there's a little gap there before, between speaking and making. And you know what that gap is? It's an opportunity for us to believe. It's an opportunity for us to have faith and be saved. It's an opportunity for his creation to respond to his will. I'm really glad that God speaks before he makes. He sent his son before he came to reclaim the universe. <laughs> I'm really glad because that means I get to be part of it. Number two, God turns on the lights before he works. You notice that? The first thing God does, day one, he turns on the lights. Why does he do that? Why does God turn on the lights? And the answer, the answer is that God doesn't like to work in the dark. He can, he can work in the dark. But if, if he can work in the dark, then why did he turn the lights on first? I think it's because he wanted someone else to see what he was doing. Here's the spiritual reality. The spiritual reality is that God is a God that wants to bring life into you. He wants to, to, to bring his creation life into you. Step one in that is turning the lights on. It's turning the lights on, okay? And that, and that takes a lot of, that can be a lot of, applied a lot of different ways. When you believe the gospel, you know what just happened? The lights came on. Remember, remember uh, Jesus says, uh, or maybe John says, that, that the light came into the world and the darkness hates the light. Because why? It exposes its deeds. When you believe the gospel, your deeds are exposed, but, but then you realize, oh, the light has shone on me and reality is now seen and now I believe it. God's step one in his creative process is always turning the lights on. Okay, but, but it's not just his step one. It's, it's the next step and it's the next step and the next step. And the reality is that you and I have this um, default setting to go back to the darkness. And I don't just mean sinning. I, I mean, we have this default setting to hide to keep God's light from exposing anything in us. We, we just love it. We, we love it because it's, just, it's, just, it's a place that feels safe. Remember when Adam sinned? What's the first thing he does? He hides. He hides from God. He hides from God's light because the light exposes. He's naked. He's like, I don't want God to see me, so he hides from God. Let me ask you something. When was the last time that you prayed a gut-level, honest prayer to God? That you were just leveled with him? When you allowed the light of his truth to actually expose what's within you. When was the last time you did that? Sometimes it's, it's, it goes, we go a long time. I was walking uh, here yesterday because I had a flat tire in my car. And I was like, well, shoot, I'll just walk. So I'm walking, it's six in the morning. And, uh, and I'm praying about this, praying about this sermon. And I'm like, Lord, would you just, will you just speak through me tomorrow? I just really want you to be glorified. And then God turned the lights on. And I thought, you know what, Lord, that's not fully true. I want to I stick it tomorrow because I want to feel good about myself. I want to feel like I preached. I want to feel like I can go home, feel like I did a good job. And God turned the lights on. And, and you know what was crazy, though, is I needed to say that to him. I needed to hear it for him to expose the wickedness in my heart. But here's the, here's the best thing about the light it's not just about exposing, it's about warmth. You ever get close to a fire? It's not just the light that the fire puts off, it's the warmth. Because you know what the immediate next thought is? God, thank you so much that you love me. Even, you don't just expose me to expose me, you expose me so that you can love me. You, you, you forgive, you, you have this kindness about him. The light brings life. I just wanna encourage you guys this morning, if you, if you feel like you're in a place where you don't feel God's life growing through you, it, it may be that you need to start being more honest with him <laughs> and, and tell him what's really going on in your heart and, and stop pretending. You know, you're not fooling him. He, he's, he's not fooled by you. He knows. He knows what you really want. He knows what you really think. And he's okay with fixing that. But he can't fix it unless you let him. Okay? Number three, God forms before he fills. He forms before he fills. Do you notice in the narrative that the first three days, God spends forming, organizing, and then he fills it. God's intention with your life is to fill it, to fill it with his life, just like he made creation in the same way he wants to fill it with his life. But what that looks like is him first doing some hard work of rearranging, some forming, some organizing. 
You know, I don't, I don't usually make points like this because I, I'm always afraid of putting bondage on people. I don't want to say, hey, you have to do this or do that. Um, and, then, and then you feel like you have to do that to earn God's favor. But here's the reality. I'm just going to say it, okay? What is a disciple? It's a disciplined one, okay? Part of being a Christian is saying, God, I want your creation life in me to the fullest degree. And in order for you to populate my life with your created life, I need to separate and organize and limit and, and actually have some dimension in my life. Part of being a disciple is being a discipline. It's not, now hear me, it's not about if I do more, God will love me more. It's if I do more, I will experience God more fully. God creates the world in order to fill it. And he wants you to create your life and environment and your practices and your functions in such a way that he can fill it. I've just been really convicted about this the last few weeks. Like, man, Lord, I've stopped being disciplined in these certain areas and it's quenched my ability to grow. Lord, I need to start getting up earlier and seeking you, giving you the first part of my day. Is there anything in my life, Lord, that's keeping me or restricting me from growing? And if there is, God would have me limit it. You know, we used to have this mindset um, as a culture where it was more, 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 more. Okay, bigger phones. Remember, phones were getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And, and now, what are they doing? They're getting smaller and smaller and smaller. You know, uh, it's like, I want a faster phone. I want a faster computer. I want more food, more money, more vacations, more experiences, more Facebook friends, more social media platforms, more, 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 more. Because we thought for a while that more was better. And you know what's funny now? I'm noticing a trend. Everything's going the opposite way. I'm noticing my friends going, and I'm going to get a dumb phone. I'm noticing my friends saying, I want a small phone. Uh, I'm noticing my friends saying, you know, um, I, I'm actually going to get rid of some stuff or I'm going to stop eating so much food or I'm going to stop spending so much money or I'm going to live in a smaller house. Why is that? It's because we realize that freedom doesn't come with more. Freedom oftentimes comes with less. That's exactly what I see here in this creative narrative. I, I see God creating everything with its place. And I see that the true life happens when you assume the position that God has put you in rather than trying to get out of it. I was joking with the first service. Uh, it's like the movie Moana, you know? Like, all she wants to do is get off her island. And that's the Disney way, you know? It's like, you need to go maximize your potential. There's so much more out there for you. You're limited by your island. And you know what God would probably say to Moana? Stay on your island. That's where I put you. Stop trying to sail off and, and realize you're epic and realize that you're so amazing and everybody loves you and blah, blah, blah. Actually, you have a purpose and a function on the island. It's this idea of limitations. God has given us limitations, and that's an okay thing. The problem is, is that we think our phones and our computers and social media gives us access out of our limitations. Well, now I can have thousands of friends. Can you really? You can't really. It's not real. I know they all said happy birthday to you at the same time. You think that they, they wouldn't even remember your birthday except for social media. It's an illusion. It's not reality. It's not reality. God created you with limitations, and he wants you to live within those limitations. I would suggest that happiness actually looks like saying, God, how do I realize what, where you've put me now instead of just trying to get out of it? God created everything within its place. He created everything within its order in order to create contrast. He created it organized. I think we are a generation that in many ways is becoming placeless. We're everywhere and nowhere at the same time. We have thousands of friends and no friends. We have everything we want to do and we're still miserable. Why? because we're not rooted where God has us. We were just trying to get out of where God has us. Number four, God is present before he is productive. You notice that? God, he could have been more productive here. Let's just be honest. In fact, he, he could have created it all in a millisecond. He, he could have just, he just could have, he could have done it way faster than he did. You know, everyone argues about it being young earth, or, or old earth, I'm like, six days seems like a long time, doesn't it? I mean, God could have done it faster than that. And what's with this break at night? And what's with this seventh day of rest? What's up with that? I mean, God's not being very productive. You know what's funny about that? God's not maximizing his full potential, we would say, in 2020. He's not doing things as fast as he possibly could. Hmm. Maybe it's not about doing things as fast as you possibly can. What does God do? He stops and he delights. He stops and he reflects. This is an art that we have lost. We've lost because we never stop. And we never reflect. We never just sit at a restaurant and wait for our friend to come. We get on our phone. We're just so busy all the time. 
And because of that, we never do what God did. He created us in his image. We never stop and go, it is good. I started doing this thing where uh, in the morning, this ritual of making a pour over coffee. And it takes me about 10 minutes. What a waste of time, right? I could just Keurig man, throw it in, slap it in. I could just drive through Dutch Bros on my way. Not there's anything wrong with that. But I've started doing this thing where I'm, I'm making a pour. And, it, and what it does is, and I don't get on my phone, it forces me to stop, slow down. And I've started doing this little thing. It just it literally takes me two seconds. I go, God, thanks for this. And I just thank him. You know what my favorite parts of my day is lately? It's the morning when I get up. It's the craziest thing. I, I love it. I just, it's like, I'm just so simple. It's a simple thing. It's thankfulness. It's being, listen, it's being present in the moment. God is a God of presence. He's present. He's present in his creation. He's present while he's working. He's enjoying the process. We don't do that. We just want to get done, get on to the next thing. I would encourage you to consider building rhythms of praise and rhythms of thankfulness and rhythms of slowness into your life. It's funny, the ancient world, you know, they used to walk everywhere. You know how much time you have to think when you walk everywhere? Now we don't walk anymore, we drive, man. We get everywhere as quick as we possibly can. You know, the other day when I, my tire was flat and I walked to work, that was a great morning. It took me 40 minutes. It was great. I just walked, man, and prayed. It was awesome. I thought, gosh, I hate cars. We should go back to walking. <laughs> it's not the point of my sermon, by the way. I just want to encourage you guys, you know, look at, look at the way that God creates and think, what can I learn from this? You know, God creates through Jesus because Jesus is the only true source of life. He creates in light. He creates with honesty. He creates with integrity. He, crea- he creates and in, in works in reality. You know, he, he, he forms before he fills and he is present before he is productive. Amen? We got about 10 minutes to get into some discussion questions. So uh, I'm gonna throw these up here. And while I pray, you can pretend to listen and start thinking about what you're gonna say. Oops. I'll put them back up there. I'll fix it. God, thank you so much for our time together this morning. Thank you that we could open up Genesis and uh, get to know you a little better see the way you work, the way you think. God, I just confess this morning, I confess that I have not been present. I've been distracted, chasing, or just being productive, or, or, or being busy. God, I want to be like, like you. I want to create like you. I want to live like you. Lord, I want to be thankful like you. I want to delight in the things that you've given me. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you that the gospel is reality, not philosophy. Lord, I pray we would respond to that reality. Man, God, this moment we're living in right now, you put us here, you know what's going on. It's chaotic. People are angry, they're frustrated, they're mad, they're, they're, they're breaking friendships over stupid things. Lord, would you give us a peace and a calm? Would you give us the ability to forgive? the ability, Lord, to, to, to love each other? Lord, would you, would you help us to, to be the calm ones in this environment, in this moment, to be the ones that, that are so saturated with your love and grace that we can, we can handle this craziness? Father, just give us good attitudes. Give us your heart, I pray, Lord, for this church. And even as we um, do our best, God, to, to, to do thanksgiving, <laughs> In whatever way that looks, I just pray for your help and favor, God. In Jesus' name, amen.